0: So this is gonna be an attempt to recap the first couple chapters of of Romans. And our goal would be to get through questions, things that might come up. There may be some questions in the room tonight, but I'm gonna read through. These are questions that came in ahead of time that Brian and I are gonna try to work our way through. We won't cover every word of every one of these questions, Brian, I don't think, uh, but we want to at least touch on the mass majority and especially the themes that are there. So let me read through some of the questions, some of the things that we're going to go through. And then those of you who are here, if you have things that pop up or want to ask a clarifying question, that would be fantastic. So we're going to look at Romans 1:16 and 17. The 17th verse of Romans 1 is another one of the instances where Paul quotes from the Old Testament. Although this one from faith for faith is subject to a lot of discussion on how it's translated and where it comes from, that kind of thing. So we're going to look at that. We're going to think about the word euangelion and good news and what its purpose was in Roman culture ahead of this and how Paul kind of co-ops it. What, that, what does that mean and what does that look like? Um, how does Jesus reveal the righteousness of God will be a question that we look at and try to consider as well. I guess that's related to the word euangelion. I also am going to talk about, this was an interesting one, uh, there's many times throughout all of the New Testament, but in Romans 1.16 specifically, where it says things like this, you know, some statement, some good news to the Jew first, and also this. And so just a question of what do we make of that phrase, the Jew first? And is that still applicable in any way? Like in what, in what way are, are Jews first, if at all, anymore? And how do we consider that nowadays? Or is there a specialness to them? So we're going to think about that. Uh, we want to talk about the whole idea of sin in the first place. So why or how was humanity subject to or able to, to sin at the start? So we clearly were designed to, God made us with the ability to reject him, to suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. So if we suppress the truth, how do we do deal with that? Um, talk a little bit about works. Romans 2 is very clear. He has this massive thing about the law and about works and that everyone will be judged according to our works. And so what does that mean? Is it it just that it's Jesus works or how should we live? And then then I'm gonna throw some questions out that weren't necessarily uh, specifically put in there, but we do wanna reflect uh, on application a little bit at the end of uh, Romans one, as it relates to homosexuality and the way we interact with people who are either established and solidly in, in a lifestyle of homosexuality or dealing with same sex attraction uh, in or outside of the church. So that'll be some of the things we think through. Anything to add, Brian, or does that sound like we're uh, we're good to go?
1: No, it sounds good. Do we want, maybe you would, do we want to start with this first one?
0: Yes. Anything to clarify the question from Romans 1 16 and 17, Andrew?
1: Just ask it again. <laughs> i don't
0: have it in front of me. <laughs> I'll read it. I'll read it. And then you tell me if uh, anything and clarify. Romans 1, 16, and 17 seem to be very, a very important couple of verses because they act as a pivot point. So the introduction goes up to there, then there's a pivot point, and it introduces a lengthy argument Paul's going to construct over the next number of chapters. So specifically, what do we make of verse 17, and the, how do we translate the phrase from faith for faith, or beginning and ending in faith, especially how it's connected to Habakkuk 2? So does that... Uh, yeah. All right. Sound, uh, sound good. I've heard Ryan, this question you... a
1: million times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, right. is, this is pretty, a pretty common question from people.
0: <laughs> you want to give it a stab at start? And then... Uh, and then Was and there then anything in mine.
1: particular you want to, Are you saying these two verses, in verse 17, you want to dig in particular on what he means by from faith, for faith? Yeah,
2: I just feel like it's an important part of understanding... If, If we're saved by faith alone it it would seem that this phrase has something to do with us understanding what that means Mm -hmm. and it is kind of like a difficult phrase I think to translate and so I just felt like maybe it would be helpful if we could look at a couple different translation how it's been translated and then kind of what that would mean for how we view what paul's talking about here
1: i think traditionally i think luther looked at verse 17 and that was his big moment because in 17 says for in it for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther took that. And originally he thought the righteousness of God was like this devastating moral standard that the gospel reveals. And it drove him crazy. It made him Luther was kind of classically neurotic about this, but the big light bulb that went off in his head was, Oh no, this righteousness of God is not God's standard being revealed in the gospel but actually a gift of a status of being righteous before God that God gives in the gospel. And that was sort of, Oh, wow. So this is not God saying I'm going to reveal how holy I am necessarily, but I'm going to reveal that I have a gift of righteousness that I can give to sinners so they can stand before me. But I, I think, uh, even some more modern commentators are like, well, Luther, that's good theology, but that might not necessarily be exactly what Paul's saying here. And I think in the beginning, Romans begins, interestingly enough, where Paul says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God. And then when he explains the gospel, he actually doesn't mention forgiveness of sins. What he does mention is the resurrection of the Son of God in power by the Holy Spirit, that Christ is the Lord. So sort of the overarching message is that God has raised his son, his anointed one. That's what Christ means. So God has raised his son in human history, and this is good news. Now, I think an aspect of that is forgiveness of sins is now offered, right? Uh, but also you see that uh, Jesus being raised from the dead calls all the nations to obey him. So the primacy of the message is there's a historical thing that happened. Jesus Christ was resurrected. And, and the significance of that is God has raised up, his messianic king over all the nations. And now all the nations have to respond to that. That's what's called the obedience of faith. And so that's the gospel message and it's the very power of salvation. I think when he says in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed righteousness. I don't think it's merely God's moral standard. And I don't think it's merely just that God can impute or count sinners righteous. I think it refers to all of God making good on his saving promises for his people. So if you look at Isaiah or if you look at the Psalms, whenever they talk about God's righteousness, it's about God delivering his people. It's about God um, regathering his people after exile or the hope of God regathering his people. And these are all in line with the promises he made to Abraham. Right? I'm going to, what he promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, a people, and through you, you're going to bless all the nations of the world. And he promises to David, you're going to have a throne, and you always have a descendant on that throne. Right? He promises in the prophets that I'm going to bring you out of the lands that you've been scattered to and regather you. You know, he promises a new heaven and a new earth. So I think God's righteousness is him making good on all of those promises. And so broadly you could say God's righteousness is his saving power, not just in saving individual sinners, but in restoring creation, in you know, releasing creation from its bondage to sin and death, like in Romans 8, what he says. So the gospel reveals God's powerful, restoring, redemptive power in history. And, and then he does something interesting. He says that this powerful redemptive message through Jesus Christ, of the reconciliation of all things back to God uh, is revealed from faith for faith. And that's really difficult to be translated. Some people say that it is from faith uh, for faith, meaning the faithfulness of Christ is what evokes our faith in him. And that's true. Um, others say it's, it's God's faithfulness in general that evokes faith. I think that that's the best way to read it. So, so Brian, I mean, that's, I think that's one...
0: One thing. So at the start, this is a question and people talk through it because the phrasing in Greek, the way that he writes it, it's not exactly clear what he means, right? So it's a it's a from or out of faith, into faith. Sometimes it, it could be translated like beginning with faith and also ending with faith. So it's there's the translation issue, right? So are we saying it's beginning somewhere from faith and then moving into faith? or from a particular place.
1: Yeah, one of the hard things is, um, well, if you look in the next little section, it says, the righteous of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now the word faith, pistis, can mean faith or faithfulness. And that's where a a lot of the translation issues occur. So, you know, is it the righteous shall live by faithfulness or by faith? And so you can see that if it's by faithfulness, you're like, okay, what does that mean? Is that kind of a works thing? How does that work? If it's by faith, what does that mean? And so then you have to kind of go, okay, well, what is this quotation for? So I think understanding the quotation from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, helps us to understand what the meaning of from faith for faith most likely is. Does, Does that make sense? So if you look at the context in Habakkuk 2, 2, and 4, Habakkuk is basically... Realizing that judgment's about to come upon Israel. And he knows that God's going to basically raise up invading armies to execute his judgment, execute his discipline. Um, but what's interesting is in this passage, he says, the righteous will live by faith. Now, in the Hebrew, uh, the... It, it refers to the righteous shall live by faith, like their own faith. The yeah, righteous people exercise faith, yeah, yeah. or faith. Translated
0: right. like, by faith, right. they will live. Right. So there's like a it, the faith is
1: is the the people who will survive this judgment of God yeah. are those who live by faith, by trust in Him. But in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it says the righteous shall live by my faithfulness, referring to God. So in one, the translation says that the righteous, their hope is that God is faithful. And uh, in the Hebrew, it's saying that the, what marks the people who will be, who will survive are those who exhibit faith. Now that's a very comp- I mean, it's not, I hope I'm not losing you guys here, but I think both of those are kind of the same thing, or at least they're two angles of the same thing. And I think that's what, is referred to in the previous section. So I think what Paul is saying here to sum it all up is he's looking at Habakkuk and he's going, here's this prophet and he knows that God is rightfully judging his people. He knows that they deserve this. They broke the covenant. They deserve the the judgment of God. And yet God says, but the ones who will be preserved from judgment, the ones who will be saved are those who believe my faithfulness, who believe that I'm faithful to my promises. Right. And that, trust my purposes. So you think if you're Habakkuk, you go, wait a minute, but God can't completely wipe out Israel because he made so many promises to her. So I'm gonna hope against hope. I'm gonna go, somehow God, you're gonna bring about your redemptive purposes, even though it seems like judgment right now. And God says, that's faith. You're believing my word, that I'm gonna be true to all my promises to Abraham and to David, even though your nation is facing a severe judgment. And he says, the people who are saved are those who go, God, I believe your word over everything else. Or the people who respond to God's faithfulness and go, God, because I believe you're faithful, your promises, even though it seems like this is the end of Israel, I know it's not. And I think yeah. Paul is saying that's the essence of faith. It's looking away from yourself and either it's Paul's either saying you exhibit faith or look at the faithfulness of God, therefore exhibit faith in response to that. Yeah. I and I think, think the that that's the, it... the from faith to faith, from seeing the faithfulness of God that will evoke faith in you.: Yeah,
0: I think the brilliance of it being in some ways not exact, or the fact that it could be in a number of these things, or the fact that Paul makes, so this isn't the only place he uses the back two passage either. He goes back to it in Galatians when he's talking about Abraham's faith. The way that faith came before the law, and then Hebrews mentions it as well. That whoever the whoever the Hebrews writer is, you know, also goes back, and he's talking as well about people who lived and exhibited faithfulness. So I I think that it's a perfect and a brilliant passage to pull through, even with the the interesting like Septuagint translation different than the than the Hebrew because I think Paul wants to make the point that in many ways it's all these things.
1: It's the, same, it's the same point, but from two different angles. One of them is emphasizing the faithfulness of God to do what he promised against any yeah. human planning or human sin. And the other angle is what marks a Christian as someone who goes, yeah, I believe that. I, I believe you really are that faithful. And then they live faithfully. And they live yeah. You had a question
3: about? Well, yeah, I wonder... Um, is this at all tied up or tangled with abraham believed god and god counted that as righteousness um so like god counting our own belief our 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 faith as as believing against belief as righteousness and so god revealing his own right standing in like it's almost the opposite side of the coin. like we were we are we are made righteous or we are kind of righteous because we believe and then God shows his right standing, his righteousness by actually coming through on what he says he's going to do. I,
0: yeah, I think it's, I think it's all those things. Yes. And that's why I love that it's a little bit murky. Like I actually, when you said it's like two things, I, I as I thought through this stuff and, and read through it, I think it could be up to four things. So there's God's faithfulness and Habakkuk has some sense of the righteous are going to get through because God's faithful. So that's God's faith period. Then I think there's the whole idea of people who put faith in God's faithfulness. That's like that's their faith itself. Right. And then once you're a faithful person, you actually have to live out a life that continues to be faithful. So one is like your mental assent that you put in God. But then the other is a life of faithfulness. So you might think like a Roman Catholic understanding of filling out your salvation kind of thing almost, like you're you're living faithfully. But then I think that when he's gonna get to the point of Jesus with the gospel, there's this idea of like this messianic, fulfilling all of the prophecies, showing what God has always been like, which is he's promised someone by faith. So this is like Jesus fulfilling all of the promises to Abraham. The righteous will live by faith. He lived by faith. So there's messianic kind of stuff in here. It reaches back to Old Testament figures who, who did this. There's our actual regenerating faith when we confess, and there's our ongoing life of faithfulness. And I love the fact that it's a it's a little bit of a murky translation. And I think that Paul might have been like, if you ask Paul, oh, are you trying to emphasize the Septuagint one? I think we should explain that a little bit more too. So. Actually, that's going to be huge in the rest of Romans because he quotes Old Testament all
1: the time. Yeah, most of the, in fact, I think, I mean, the vast majority of Old Testament quotations in the New Testament are quotations from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That was their common Bible. It's really interesting that it shows that God is not opposed to translations, you know, maybe as opposed to like, you know, Islam, where you have to have it in Arabic and all that stuff. But uh, the meaning is still preserved in in the Septuagint and they they quoted yeah. it. So I
0: usually would just say though that if you're going to quote the Old Testament, there's a reason that we carefully translate from Hebrew now. Because the apostles, the apostles use the Old Testament in a way that like I would get in trouble for if I didn't mm-hmm. often. Like they they get creative sometimes. They they'll pull they'll pull strings that are kind of like, What? Was the writer of Joel really saying that? But it's an apostle writing it, so he's he's like, Yes, he was, you know, and there's an authority there, of course, that I don't think that we would. So, but you're right, there's there's translations. So sometimes if you look for it, like I don't know if you've ever read through an Old Testament. Oh, I was gonna ask you that. I don't know if you've ever read, it. of course you have. But all the times where there's a quotation in the Old Testament, if you're being a studious person, you might go back and you'll be like, oh, I wanna go find where that was. It says it's from Psalm 47. And then you go to Psalm 47 and the four you know four of the words don't match, the order's all different. And you're like, the Bible's lying. What is it doing? And this would be one of those instances where they're often translating from a Greek translation of original Hebrew manuscript. So it's like a double translation. It's like a little bit of telephone going on in that kind of scenario. And I think that happens here. But I also think if you ask Paul, Paul, on that point on verse 17 where he's quoted Habakkuk to describe this weird Greek phrase, from faith to faith, did you mean God's faithfulness or a messianic faithfulness? Or did you mean just like belief is get righteousness? Or did you mean how we're going to live those who believe? I think he would have been like, yes (laughs) yes <laughs> yes all of it like he's grasping all the way back and bringing it forward so i don't know if that makes sense andrew how you feel about it but it's
2: yeah, no, that was very helpful
0: okay i think it's i think it's all that
3: i think it's interesting that peter that things that paul says are confusing yes hard to understand and paul's
0: even maybe even dumbing down what he's saying by using the group translation that everybody else would have been <laughs> yeah. Well, Paul went to like whatever level of heaven that he went to. Yeah. So right. he probably, he has, he has like translation skills.
1: Do you want to go to the next maybe. one? Um,
0: yeah. What do what you got as the next
1: one? What would a person living in the Roman empire in the first century have made of Paul's use of the word euangelion with regard to Jesus? Euangelion is the Greek word for gospel or good news. A man who was executed by the government as a common criminal. Parentheses, good news is often connected with the emperor, births, military victories, etc. Did you write this too, Andrew? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What would a person living? Well, it would have been very political. I mean, I think we're doing the Gospel of Luke in our college Bible study. And it's amazing how there's so many references to who the Caesar is, who's the high priest, all these things. So Jesus comes in the middle of the reign and rule of political figures and all these things. And you can imagine... A king of the jews showing up i mean that's a threat to caesar that's a threat to herod that's something That's a very political statement so i think it would have been very kind of explosive i mean I, the, the the environment of jesus day was very politically charged you had pharisees who were sort of like a working class bible teachers who were very concerned with purity laws because they were like, well, look, the whole reason that Romans are over us is because we broke Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says, if you sin against me, I'm going to put you under Gentile rulers, right? So they're sitting in the land, even though they're back in the land, they're like, we're still ruled by Gentiles. So we're obviously slacking on our holiness. So you can understand why they'd be like, well, let's separate from Gentiles and let's make sure we exercise the purity laws perfectly, the dietary laws, keep Sabbath, you can tell why they'd be very focused on that. You also had people like the Zealots, who were more radical, who wanted to overthrow Rome, most times by military force or insurrection. And then you had the Sadducees, which Jesus runs into, and uh, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They sort of were the ones who co-conspired with Rome. They figured, well, this is our lot in life, and We don't really believe there's much of an afterlife at all. So we're just going to try to compromise a little bit and make good with Rome. And then you have the Essenes who are more spiritual and kind of like, we'll just do our own thing and separate and and wait for the Messiah to come. But all of these are political hopes. It's tied in with what's going to happen to our nation. What's going to happen to the destiny of our people. And so for the Messiah to come and for Jesus to come and for him to call himself the king in opposition to Caesar, in opposition to King Herod, uh, is very very political, and so the gospel is is a and by political I mean it, it's a it's a public it makes a public claim upon uh, governments and society, which you can't avoid when you talk about someone naming himself the Christ, the Anointed One, the 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 throne, the heir to the throne of David. I mean, what is the throne of David? That's a political office, right? And that's what Jesus inherits. So I think that would have been. A person living in the Roman empire would hear, oh, somebody has just made a claim to power and authority, right? And we yeah. see that in the beginning of Romans where he says, if Jesus is king, all the nations must obey by faith. There's a moral obligation for all the nations to now bow before the, uh, the risen Christ.
0: I was thinking about that word. I mean, a couple of things that I appreciate or I like about it. And I love the way that Paul uses euangelion all the way throughout the book, really through the New Testament. He turns, he uses it every way. He shortens it like for, uh, he uses every kind of noun you could possibly use with euangelion. He turns it into a verb to describe what he does. So sometimes instead of saying herald, like the normal, uh, word for, for herald or to proclaim, he just uses, he's, he says the word gospel and then he just turns it into a verb. So he's like, I was gospeling the people. So it becomes a very, very important word. And I totally agree, I think it's like a, it's a lot like the gospel itself in the sense that it is either really provocative, like it would have been to the Roman rulers who thought he was coming, like Herod, who would have responded. It would have been really offensive to those Jewish people who thought that he was not the Messiah. But then I also think that it's, uh, it it probably was just sort of amusing like amusing to, to people who would have been disinterested and just would sort have of thought, ah, it's another rabble rouser who got put to death over there. And now they're all talking about it. They're proclaiming him like he was the emperor or something like that. I just, I, I can't imagine, I can imagine two extremes. So like Roman people who were concerned, like Herod, thinking like, I don't want to give him my king and we'll kill him. I can imagine the other extreme of it from, from the religious side, people who are super offended and were mad that this was being used. And then I just I just wonder about people in the middle who are like uh, trying to get on their way to the market, and they just hear preaching people preaching on the street or by the synagogue or something, and I, I think it would be almost amusing to them, kind of like oh they're borrowing language of the of politi- you know of politics and the emperor, but I doubt that it would have you know I mean hopefully they would have come to faith eventually, but
1: we kind of answered number two. Yeah, thank. Do you guys have any?
3: There's places where Paul's considered silly. And I wonder if that's what of them. like. He's using this word to refer to a dead guy. And then there's other parts where he says, hey, by the way, the guards of Caesar say hi to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's very much a mixed perception for how how gospel
0: yeah, and later, I mean, well, Corinthians most explicitly, but he's gonna say the evangelion is foolishness to the world. It really is a silly. I mean, it's just full on, you're using language of military triumph and emperors and victory parades for a guy who we killed years ago. <laughs> yeah, so it would have been, that's what I mean, like an almost an, an amusement to it. And it would have seemed as totally silly.
1: Do we want to- Go uh, the Jews first?
0: Yeah, this is
1: an interesting one. So Jews so first, why Jews first? In verse one sixteen, people have a lot of questions about this. It talks about how uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek. So the question is why does it say Jews first? And how should we think about this preeminence nowadays when I'm tempted to equivocate Bible Jews equals God's special people, equal people equals the church now. What should hold me back from that? Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna just maybe be comment it? on what that means. When he says equivocate, Bible,
0: the Jews of biblical times are God's special people, but that's equal to the church now. That's what's known as replacement theology, this idea that the Jewish people as God's chosen ones are just done with sort of, and now every promise that you'd see to them or all the fulfillments, anything we're supposed to expect in the future, the church has replaced that role. And so what God was doing in setting up the Jewish people from all the way back was essentially just preparing the way for his church and we shouldn't make a big deal about the distinctions between them. So that would be one side, right? And he says, you know, there could be a temptation to just do that because it does simplify things. I guess someone just says, why does it say Jew first here? You know, maybe he's just meaning, you know, well, it's the same as God's church. But I think everybody knows that there's also another side to that There's like a scale. So if you did like a scale of one to 10, um, you could also do a scale of replacement theology Meaning all the fuss about Jewish people in the New Testament is means nothing. It's just the church. Just replace the church, and then on a ten on the farther scale is like the people who are end times obsessed. Left behind. Yeah, like that series, or or people who legitimately. I've driven. Uh, I've driven through cities before and seen people who it seems like they dedicate a significant part of life. They paint their vans. They have picket signs that say "Pray for Israel." Uh, very keenly interested in in geopolitical movements concerning, you know, concerning Israel, that kind of thing. So um i mean i i of course have some views on this i think there's gonna be a lot to say about this when we get later
1: in romans but yeah wanna, romans 9 and 11 will covers that and it is a really important question i mean romans sometimes when we come to romans we wanted to answer questions that paul wasn't asking or that paul wasn't primarily concerned with i mean paul is sitting there and he's not just going oh the church now has these two different ethnic groups he's going the church now has a group of people who were God's chosen people who have rejected the Messiah in mass. And now all these people who aren't supposed to be in are coming in the Gentiles. So it's not just two ethnic groups. It's one ethnic group that was, that had this special status and another one who didn't. And it seems like everything's flipped. The ones who were out are in and the ones who were supposed to be in seem to be showing them their way out. And so Paul is trying to wrestle with those truths and, and show no God didn't screw up. There wasn't some kind of mistake It wasn't as though he tried to uh, use Israel, and then he was like, oh, that was a bad idea. They were terrible. Maybe I'll see if the Gentiles do better. So that's one of the things Paul is trying to hold together. And it used to be, and and you see this a lot, you know, I I would say probably a lot with the Catholic Church where the New Testament Church is essentially the replacement of Israel. I mean, it's all the, every time, everything that was promised to Israel is promised to the Church full stop. And that's a very flat view of it. But what happened in the 20th century was the Holocaust. And then, then there was the establishment of the state of Israel. And that really started to challenge people to think, well, maybe we've got this, maybe we need to pay attention to Israel a little more. And obviously there's a history yeah. of anti-Semitism I, and, and you, all these things. You can't make too little of that fact. Israel from the exile in 500 BC
0: was essentially a non-entity geopolitically for 2,300 years, probably somewhere in there. I mean, the it, it's not, uh, they didn't just break the record for the, it would be as if the Assyrians just came, well, they kind of did actually, Syria. But uh, it, the fact that it's 2,300 years is shocking. And that right. it was easier to just believe everything's been replaced, is what you're saying. Right. Until and so, 1948.
1: And so, that's sort of challenged things, but I think the way to think about it, and I heard this illustration from this theologian named Alistair Roberts, I'll probably quote him a bunch, but <laughs> uh, this <laughs> is one of the more nuanced ways of viewing it, where he talks about how God's people, imagine God's people, it, you know, it's a kingdom, right? But but imagine the kingdoms that we know. So think about the United Kingdom. We've got England, Ireland, Scotland, who else, is that it? Wales. Wales, all so there's, there's these different little, uh distinct nations within this one kingdom, right? And they are part of one kingdom, but I without losing their distinctions. Alistair is in the UK. Oh uh, yeah, of course. So this well, is what makes This, this right. illustration is just so delicious. Yeah. But uh, he's British. But imagine that all the Gentile nations are the Scotland's, the Ireland's, the Wales, all that stuff. And Israel is England. Now they're all part of the same kingdom, but there's one that has prominence, right? England. Right? England sort of is where it started. Does that make sense? And so, even among them, there's a distinction. You, you sort of see the primacy of England. Now, imagine if England suddenly defected from the UK. You would feel like something serious was missing until they came back. Does that make sense? And so, what we see here is that England has defected. Israel has turned away from the Messiah. And that's left a big hole in the kingdom of God. But one of the things that Paul says in Romans 9 through 11 is, That kingdom will be restored. Israel, in some way, will return to the Lord. And that will be the fullness of God's people, right? But as of right now, the main player in God's kingdom is in a state which Paul calls partial hardening. It's a very interesting word, partial hardening. And I I was talking to a friend of mine who is actually, he's Jewish, ethnically Jewish, but he's a Christian. And he mentioned how the partial hardening uh, in many ways is that the jews today still celebrate so many of the feasts and they still keep kosher and they still follow so many things in the old testament and still believe that a messiah is coming so so they have some belief in the promises of god it's just it's they're partially hardened to the fact that jesus christ has fulfilled it that the new covenant has come and so i definitely think that israel has an important part to play i don't think we should go crazy about it like kind of lance was was talking about with the left behind series and what stuff But I think viewing Israel as the prime nation in a collection of nations that comprise God's kingdom is a good way of distinguishing them while also not separating them out from the church. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I think there's a technical
0: answer, too. I don't want to gloss over that. It's honestly just more fun to think about all the end time stuff and like, yeah, what happens with Israel and why did Jewish people reject? I think there's a technical answer to this as well. Paul's going to make the argument that righteousness or salvation was always offered by faith. That's huge for him. So the gospel has its fulfillment in Jesus, but it's not like God changed his mind. He didn't used to think, man, the only way everybody's going to get in is if they just obey me. Of course, there was a covenant of works, but I think he was pretty clear no one was going to get there. So when it says in verse 16, salvation is for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's not just that they were special and unique first. But quite literally, this was revealed to them first. That Abraham was given the command to live by faith. It's by because of your faith you'll be set free. So there's that. That's I think the part of the technical answer to why it's right here. But the bigger question of what do we do with Israel? Have you guys? I don't. Have you guys uh, ever considered this or read much, or, or do you have like family members who are like? Usually, it's someone has at least one family member who's very interested in Israel. Anybody? Nobody have that. Not really. Okay, maybe it's just me. My my upbringing, like my church back home, I remember lots of people insisting that Israel was not everything, but it felt like to me as a kid that Israel, Israel was everything. Like I just needed to. They they would have wanted to for us to take 15 minutes every church service and just pray for Israel. They they honestly voted based on who was going to give the most money or support for Israel. I mean, they just so much of what was happening was tied to that, and. uh I mean, I, I don't want to say, like you said, I, I do believe that there is going to be a coming back and there's a significant part of the kingdom, of
1: course, but we're going to get to that more in Romans 9 through 11. Really quickly, in Romans not, in Romans eleven twenty-eight, Paul says this, as regards the gospel, they, speaking of Israel, the nation of Israel, are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So he's talking here not about the church he is talking about Israel and he's saying look right now they're your enemies they're persecuting you as the church but they're God's chosen ones they're elect and that's not sort of the from the beginning of time election in this context is a historical election god elected chose you know in numbers in number 7 he chose Israel out of all the nations to be his people and god meant that to be irrevocable that There's a reason I chose this people group, right? And he says that because of your forefathers, because of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, because your blood descended from them, that still means something. And the fact that you're ethnically Jewish still means something for your future, because the gifts and calling of God cannot be revoked. So, uh, one of the things is when God promises things to Israel, um, he doesn't want it to be a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to people who are jewish but to say no being jewish uh it means something it's significant god had wanted one nation out of all to be a special and you, people. and you
0: mean by that ethnically
1: like, like it, it still, still means something, something sure, ethnically
0: to be jewish right right that that's still part of the question right and, and i agree
1: i mean how exactly it means something i don't i don't know yeah but it, it's it's as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But I guess that's another, I mean, that's a can of worms we can do. In yeah, when Romans 11 Five comes years around. from now when we hit Romans yeah. 11. Yeah, a couple of decades when we get there, that'll be that. You want to just skip to three, because three and two are kind of...
0: Yep, I think they're very, uh, I think they're similar. I mean, two is more a little bit about, like, I think the basic question why are we able to sin? But yeah, well, let's look at three. So yeah. question three, this one, at least it's on our, they're numbered very odd. I'm saying three because I pulled them from a diff- bunch of different spots. That's it's not the actual third right. question. But uh, can you flesh out in chapter two, the emphasis on work? So let me just read a couple phrases from two. He says, hold um, on. Now, verse six. Verse six is the most direct. He will render to each one according to his works and those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He gives eternal life. And uh, so phrases like that seem to be very focused and it's coming right after this idea of judgment. So there's going to be a judgment about our practice of sin, of the things that we do. And then he has that phrase, that seems pretty straightforward. He renders to each one according to his works. So the question is, Does that mean that we can work our way into a salvific position? That's what's what's written here. How are works so clearly commended here? And does that really, is that really true that each person, and if you actually by patience seek for glory and honor and immortality, will you get eternal life? So the question was there, does that mean that you can just fake it until you make it into heaven? Like you're just trying really hard? Um, Can you change habits first? And then that leads to heart change, or is it always the other way around? And I guess I would just say, one, I, I love this question because I think that it's very easy to gloss over the way that we live. And especially for Protestants, we can be very quick to dismiss any concept. Like the word, the word works is like a W word, it's like the W word, it's a, it's a work is a four letter word to, to Protestants. Because we're so clear, which I think is true from the Bible, that your works are not the ground of your salvation, I think sometimes they're downplayed to a detriment, right? And people think if you talk about works, it's sort of like a, a Roman Catholic thing or something like that, or Mormon or you know, whatever else. Uh, actually, honestly, in, in Islam, you know, Muslims would very much say that our works matter and they're not even sure if they can make it to heaven, they just have to do well enough. So my thought there is to say, I, I do think we need to pay attention um, I also want to be a little bit more gracious when there are different faith traditions. Historically, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church, who puts an emphasis more on, on our works with the works of Christ, I would just want to make sure that I'm being gracious to say. I mean, Scripture doesn't downplay works, and even in a book like Romans, which is so gospel heavy, it's it's there. Like we really do need to live honorable works uh, works life. When I preached this passage, I made a big point that everyone's gonna be saved by works. And the, the punchline there is that everyone is saved by works. It's just that none of our works get get us there. It's gonna be Jesus' works. There's just no other but but Jesus did actually live a works-rich life. I mean, he it wasn't a it wasn't a coincidence that he happened to live a righteous life through the entirety of his life. That was vital. If you if he didn't obey the law and offer a a life of works to God, we have no hope, right? So I made that point. I still stand by it. I think it's the thrust. And again, that's one of those decisions that I have to make. I have, you know, however much time on a Sunday morning. And I do think the main thing for us to take away is that Jesus lived a life of righteousness on our behalf. We need to give up our works and take his. But also when I'm studying it, I do think to myself, yeah, this is an interesting dynamic that if we're to be Christians, we're supposed to live like him and works still matter to God. We don't don't get to just toss them out which I think could be the instinct. And that's why Paul keeps coming back again and again and again to say, should we not, should we just sin then? Should we just not care? Does it not matter? And he's always saying, you know, megate or whatever it is in Greek, like by no means, no way, exclamation points. So I, I of course, I'm not Roman Catholic, um, but I understand sometimes their instinct or their desire to say, the Bible doesn't throw out works. You really do have to actually, have works. And I think this would be one of the spots that you could point to, to say, yeah, God is going to judge us. So is that fair? Miranda? or do you just say
1: like, nah, he's not really going to judge us according to our works. Well, I think according to his works is might have a nuance then based on works. So it's like part of the question is when you talk about what is salvation, it's not merely the changing of a legal status before God. It certainly is that, that if you're a sinner, God counts you as righteous, even though you're not righteous. That's certainly part of it. But part of salvation too, isn't just, again, it's not just punching a ticket to heaven and realizing you shouldn't be there. It's the redemption of sinners. It's not just saving from the consequences of sin, but it's a radical moral transformation of who you are. And so I think what he's saying is, look, looking in the prior chapter where he makes a big deal about uh dishonorable passions and sin, and then later on when he talks about circumcision, I think what what Paul is saying here is, look, you guys think that you're going to be justified, you're going to be counted righteous because you're circumcised, right? Because Just because you're the people of God and you're Jewish. And he's like, but no, God is not going to judge you based upon circumcision. He's going to judge you based upon your heart, right? Manifested in its works. That, that's, the, that's the point of circumcision. It's not just this external thing. It's an external sign pointing to an internal reality called the circumcised heart. And that's the thing. He's saying the big problem with humanity is that your hearts are wicked, right? They're uncircumcised. And salvation is the circumcision of the heart, the taking away of the flesh, the removal of that sin nature in you. And so what he's saying is, look, at the end of the day, God's people on the final day of judgment will be those whose hearts are circumcised. Those who do, are not self-seeking, but who seek glory, honor, and immortality. Those are the people. Those are the marks of the true people of God.
0: Sure. So the emphasis there of works, it's works of repentance. It's works of faith. It's works of humility. It's worth of, works of self-denial. It's yeah. not like I climbed a mountain or, and sacrificed to go. Or think about,
1: you know, in, in Romans 4, Paul talks about faith as Abraham, Abraham believes God and God counts it to him as righteousness. Well, then in James, it says, Abraham, how did you know that that Abraham's faith was real? Well, because he had works that were evidence of it. He was willing to sacrifice his son. So those two are not the same thing, but they're tied together. So if you go, you know, can I just, like when people say, you know, I believe in Jesus, I'm good. What do you mean by believe? Do you mean intellectual assent to some facts? Or do you mean what the Bible says about believing, which is true belief is the kind of guy that against all hope will believe that God can bring life to his wife's dead womb. And faith is also the kind of guy who believes, even if God asks me to give up my son, I know that he's good and there's a purpose behind it. And I'm gonna do it trusting God. So faith is very active. So I think sometimes when we think about faith, we're only thinking about, here's some things I'm supposed to believe, I check the I believe box, I'm good. And that's where a lot of confusion comes. But I think the essence of faith is that a life lived by faith, the righteous who live by faith will be righteous people. They will be people who in the end will have exhibited glory, honor, and immortality, or uh, well doing and seeking for those things yeah
2: this may go kind of way beyond what we're talking about but when i've dealt with this kind of faith and works thing before i sometimes will tell people a story um so my dad had his pilot's license and could fly uh, small planes so he had um like a timeshare and a cessna a single engine like four seater mm-hmm. and he took me up and it when I was little, but it took like three or four times of him just like taxiing around the runway and then pulling that sucker back into the hangar because I was just too scared to do it. And so, I don't know if you want to talk about this as like faith in my dad or faith in physics that the airplane would actually fly. But to me, when we try to, we're, like you said earlier, as Protestants, we're really scared of saying anything about our Salvation is based on the works. But to me, like, part of your having faith in something is doing some kind of work. to shift. So, for me, I can tell my dad all day, I have faith in this airplane to fly that you can fly. But until I get in and take off and fly, I don't actually have faith. That that's kind of sure,
1: happening. and that's a distinct... Right, yeah.
2: So, so right. like, my act of getting in and flying with him is not just... Evidence of my faith—it actually
1: is like it is the how faith.
2: my faith
1: plays out. Yeah, maybe that's a good way to say. It. Like, and that's what I mean. Like when people think about, sometimes people think faith is me checking the box that I believe this thing, and then works is me proving it or something. Is that, is yeah. that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. But really, the real living faith is something that will express itself in action. But I wouldn't say that the work is the same thing as faith. Because but, I think that you could, oh, go
3: ahead. I was gonna say, how what we believe affects how we live.
1: Right. Right, I mean, so it drives,
3: like, I believe that when I breathe in, I'm gonna breathe in air and I'll keep living. Whereas if I'm in a room full of poison, I will
0: refuse. Sure, to drink, right? yeah. Now, I think to the point, and I hope that that story, you know, came through on podcast, This, this idea that, You prove that you believe something can fly or that someone could fly a plane by actually flying with them. But uh, I think maybe the point here, and, and maybe the Bible doesn't make as clear distinctions. If you're the kind of person who's prone to believe you're working your way to heaven, then yes, you need the freedom of the gospel to say, believe, receive. But for a lived life with someone who wants to honor God, maybe making such careful distinctions about, well, I would say the faith is different than the works that come from the faith and that kind of stuff. I guess I would just say, I don't want to be so quick to try to separate them, that sometimes to say to someone, I believe needs to, or could also be said without us nitpicking it, I did this, like I acted in this such a way, which revealed the belief. And it might be revealing the belief, or it might be the belief itself, or it might be, but I... I just don't want to make such careful distinctions all the time, because I think it downplays and sets two things at odds with each other that really hold hands. They they inevitably hold hands, they come together, they are, so are they the thing, or are they always, but I just feel like sometimes people talk about it in such a way that it, they're enemies. So anytime you talk about doing something, it's like a pushback, but. I like
3: how James puts it, like, so stark, is like,
1: it's not knowing something because the demons know
0: right. who God is, and they're,
3: yeah, I mean so there is it's more than just
0: a mental Yeah, it can be. And it, it probably is good to think about. I mean, do we ever believe something but act opposite to that thing?
1: Yeah, I mean I guess that's what he calls a dead faith, which is no faith, which is so well think about Abraham again. So I think sometimes when we think about works, we equate that with action. Like that if you're justified by faith alone, it means you're it's like you're static, you sit alone in a room and you just have a thought about Jesus and that's what saves you. And if you move at all, you've added a work to it. But works has a very specific idea, it's not action. It's not saying you're saved by works, you're saved by faith, not actions, because faith is an action. But works has this very specific connotation of uh, doing things by the power of the flesh, by your own natural resources. So think about this. Abraham, according to the flesh, cannot have children. He's too old, his wife is too old. And so him trying to bring about God's promises by his flesh would be futile, right? And that's sort of like us trying to earn God's favor by our moral behavior. It's it's, it's no more effective than a barren wife and her old husband trying to conceive a child, right? But what is faith? It's God says, I'll do it, So trust me. And by trusting, what does he do? He leaves his country, he goes and he follows. And he goes, God, I'm gonna follow as a response, not to my ability to make this happen, but to your ability to make it happen. So faith is an action that grabs a hold of the promises of God. It's still an active thing, but it's not a work in the sense of Abraham has no human capability to make these promises come to pass. The only way he's gonna have a child is what? If God is faithful to his word. And because Abraham believes that, he goes, I trust you, I'm gonna leave my country, I'm gonna do these things. Does that make sense? So that's the yeah. distinction that would be, yeah. <laughs>
0: you know, I always use it. I mean, this is not exactly a faith works thing, but I was just thinking about it. I never thought like, stop me if this gets a little uh, crass, but, but uh, Abraham and Sarah did not have a virgin birth though either. You know what I mean? Like, in the flesh, he said, they're unable to have a child. But they did have a child in the flesh. Because it's not recorded as like, and then they woke up one morning and without, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the kind of stuff that's not in there. So I... I'm, well, they, I they believed. I'm not talking about flesh in terms of like physical. No, I I know. Yeah. I know what you're saying, but it it's an action. Like there's a... Anyway, like I said, let's, oh right, we're, yeah, we're probably, it is an action, but it's not a like a work. Like they worked for the yeah. promise. this it, is a this yeah. is a G program, so we should move on. But I just think that the those are they're connected. They're, I mean, they're, they're. I don't know yes. what else to oh, say. it like, just got weird. So Flying now. Don't in get out, out of the plane. You're the one that said they couldn't have a child well, by now, the flesh. Yeah, I mean, I think the, that kind of covers four. Do you want to just go to? Yeah, of, like let the, me ask a couple of these. Uh, the big boys? Yeah, these are ones, not Did necessarily you, big ones. Do,
1: do you guys have questions that you came here with? No? Okay. Hmm.
0: Perfect. All right, I'm gonna throw out one that came up in our community group that I thought was a good one, and it's one that I, I definitely think through when I read these sections. So a lot of Romans 1 and 2 has to do with people who obey the law even though they don't have the law, or the conscience which moves people to do something Apart from direct instruction. And the question came up what do we make of people who have never heard the gospel? So a guy who's born in Papua New Guinea at a tribe dies of a wound when he is 15 years old because of a battle with another tribe, never explicitly heard the gospel. You know? How do we imagine? Does Paul have a category for that? Where do we? Put, uh, put people in there for that. And so this question, how do we think about or what do we make of those people who have never heard the gospel? So that's an interesting one to me. And I have also thought of this often. I think about it when I read Romans 1 and 2 sometimes. And, uh, and it seems like it's worth, worth considering. So do we wanna do on the one hand, on the other hand? kind of thing?
1: Sure. Uh, You
0: don't know the hands. I'll tell you my hand. I'll tell you the hands.
1: I think you got this one.
0: (laughs) Okay. You can take this one. On the one hand, (laughs) I believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by proclaiming the Word of God. That's going to be Romans 10. It's, It's coming. So I don't want to ever downplay the idea that normatively speaking, expressing faith in God matters. And we don't have a whole lot of license to give people sturdy hope other than confessing Jesus, right? So I I would wanna hold that up and to say, there's an impetus for missions for a reason. Like we want to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim Christ. Paul wanted to go to Spain, to places that he was not named because Jesus does need to be named. That is the normative tried and true path. And I don't think that there's a ton of license for us to stand on firm ground apart from proclaiming Jesus. So that's on the one hand. I think that's, that's clear. I think there's a reason this is a tough question. On the other hand, it does seem like there's evidence in Romans one and two that sometimes people do works of the law because God wrote something in their heart. And he says there are people who even seem to have a circumcised heart that were not Jewish people because of the conscience that's inside of them. And so I think that that would give me some hope to say, that maybe God reckons with people, in a on a desert island, in such a way that that they could have, even on creation. He says that what's been known, what's been made known about Him is clearly known, like His by His power through creation. I'm like, okay, well there there could be some hope there that someone wouldn't have to explicitly hear Jesus and they could somehow express a kind of faith in God because of what's in creation. Secondarily, another reason that I would say that I would never really know, even though I don't have certainty to tell exactly what's going to happen. God says over and over and over and over again that his mercy knows no end. That Jesus will have first place in everything. That there will be an untold number of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. So I think about this, you know, honestly, it's a similar question to, well, what happens to babies when they die or something like that? And I think you're in a good spot, one, if you leave the judgment of these things up to God, because he'll judge rightly. Will not the judge of all the world, of all the earth judge rightly? Yes. Yes. And then two, is he not unbelievably merciful and, and could probably bring about mercy in ways that we would never imagine? And so I think one of the reasons this is such a curious question, not only because of the impulse to missions, but because I don't know that we'll ever really know. I, and I don't, I'm not sure exactly what to say to someone. I would never want to downplay the possibility and the reality of hell for people who do not hear Christ and never name him. And I would never want to tell someone for sure, no matter what. You're totally lost because God's merciful, and I hope that He judges in a way that brings so many to Jesus that we're astounded, right? So I don't know if there's any uh, any thoughts on that, any response on that. Anyone have a better? Has anyone ever better heard like heard like a definitive answer for something like this? Okay. Well, I hope it. I, I think it's an on the one hand, on the other hand thing. And it's one of those places in the Bible where it seems like there's, we don't know.
3: I have a tangle of thoughts, so feel free to edit this out. Um, But like, when God hears his people crying out for mercy in Egypt, like they don't really know, like they know of, they know of the God of Abraham and Israel, right? But they don't really know slave and that's that's sort of demonstrated that they're worshiping egypt's gods too and like that's that's being filtered out by you know put the blood of the lamb on your dope doorposts and i will pass by it and even uh joshua proclaiming you know figure out for yourselves who you're going to follow As for me and my house we shall follow the lord like there's this there's this recognition that god knows his people but that there wasn't they didn't necessarily know
0: yeah. him, yeah.
3: um, but he, he is faithful to send a savior so that they do know him, and you bring up Papua New Guinea, missionaries have gone to Papua New Guinea at this point, and like they're, and say this, but like you know, the, the people there had no idea who he was, and now their culture is so changed, they had no idea who their old culture was now, because they're all the significant parts of that population are believers now. So, I mean, is it, is it the case that God hears people crying out, even though they don't know him, and then he sends he sends someone to, with the gospel? I don't, yeah. I don't no, know.
0: Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, how much do people need to know in order for God to be merciful to them? Because we're all, compared to what God knows and what he really is, we're all pretty lacking. You know, I mean, it's, so yeah, I I agree. I've told people before, I mean, when you cry out for mercy or ask for forgiveness of sins, you don't need to understand the scapegoat imagery from the Old Testament. The thief on the cross didn't understand propitiation. You know, he doesn't, there's a huge knowledge gap there, but an authentic cry to mercy to the creator of the universe and trusting that he can forgive is met with a lot of excitement from God, right? So... Anyway, that's a tough one. You wanna you wanna try as a as a whole some of the other we've we're exactly at fifty-nine yeah. minutes, aren't we? So we should probably So uh, let's just
1: do a minute on homosexuality.
0: Yeah, just one minute and then we're set. Um you pick which one you think
1: it may actually mention
0: the resource thing.
1: Have you, yeah. so have so you one of them told was, people that? Yeah. We have a on our website, you can go to Romans Recap. There's a little tab there at forexmithdown.com. And there's a resource list to a bunch of articles and books on the issue of homosexuality, ranging from some more technical works to more popular ones to more autobiographical to more you know short form form long form there's all kinds of stuff there. you can check that out. I was going to ask
0: you if you only have time to read one thing what what would you read what's your favorite
1: um, is it what's it Gagnon. yeah Robert Gagnon, Robert Gagnon. yeah, it's a pretty good one um what's that
0: called Robert Gagnon as always mentioned I think you know what it's called called uh
1: Oh, man, I can't remember what it's called. It's on the website, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, actually, there's a, there's a book. A, a popular book that's been out is Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian. It's a... No, no. And Matthew Vine's is a affirming of homosexuality and he wrote this book is very popular. Well, there was a, some Southern seminary professors wrote a response to his book and it's free, it's a free PDF and there's a link to that as well. I think that's a pretty good
0: Yeah, yeah, so basic to be clear summary. in case someone just got out of the car and didn't hear it, don't read The Vine's Book or right. carefully read The Vine's Book. And then I read it the, thoughtfully. We're read, not recommending the, the Vine's Book, right? Yeah. Okay.
1: But uh, I think there's one question is it possible to be a gay Christian? And um I think you what do you mean by that? I mean, is it possible be a Christian and struggle with same-sex attraction? Yes, Paul says that. I mean, he says you were all once homosexual or idolaters or thieves or something <laughs> like of, that. Was that? <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, he says such- He doesn't
0: explicitly say you were all once Well, no, 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 no. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right, right, right. But, mean, he, but, he, but he has 20%. a list, right.
1: <laughs> and he says, as such were some of you, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So he has this whole list, but yeah. I mean, yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, oftentimes people will say, well, homosexuality is a sin like every other sin. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter because that's what we think about sin in general. So like everyone's just, sin is just not really taken seriously. But if you really mean that, if you really believe it's a sin like any other sin, then it ought to be repented of, it has to be fought against, and you need community and prayer and support against that. So can a Christian struggle with same-sex sin, same-sex attraction, same-sex you know, acts, all that stuff? Of course. But should you identify yourself as a gay Christian? Well, I think, again, if homosexuality is a sin like adultery or lying or or thief or whatever, would you call yourself, you know, a lying Christian? Would you call yourself an adulterous Christian? Would you ever, in any other kind of sin, would you identify yourself with it? I don't think you would. And so I think that identifying yourself as a gay Christian has problems because of that. I don't think you want to say that. There's a modifier on Christian that's, that's a significant part of your identity. I think you can say, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I struggle with all kinds of sins, and one of those sins happens to be this too, right? But to identify yourself with it, I think, is very, I think it's psychologically damaging, even just to, to attach that as part of your identity. Um, so I, I don't think that – I think it's possible to be a Christian with same-sex attraction. I don't think you should call yourself – a gay Christian, as if it were this immutable, unchangeable, not even unchangeable, but 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 you know that that there's a special class of Christian or that you should even identify yourself with something that you struggle with that that should be part of your identity so does that make sense
0: yeah, I mean is it possible to be someone who identifies himself that way and is forgiven in Christ yes, absolutely right. one thousand I just don't times, think yes. it's yeah.
1: helpful to identify yourself that way,
0: sure, and I would even say i mean it's like you said, it's it's both unwise and I think potentially damaging. I would also say to me, it shows a little bit of immaturity about the understanding of what we're dealing with because one of the difficulties of same-sex attraction and then the the pull of that, the narrative surrounding that, the lifestyle of that is I believe the misunderstanding that it is a an identity down to the core of who you are as though our sexuality Defines us ultimately, and if someone has, uh, I mean, I would rejoice over it. If someone says, "No, I don't, I don't want to live like I don't want to live like this," I'm going to reject this. I believe same sex attraction is not something that's holy or righteous or good, and they've rejected all of that. But then they would continue to say, "I'm going to keep this as an identifier." It seems like to me that they've not they've not rejected that that next level. They they're still accepting some narrative concerning the immutable identity of themselves based only on what they desire sexually. And they're holding on to it in a way that I would say, well, I think that needs to be repented of as well. And by repented I mean change your mind on that. That there's a there's a level where that's not. And and I would also say too, I mean this is a, a deeper conversation, there there are different groups of Christians that would call themselves gay Christian. So I think it should be clear the Vines book earlier I mean, there are some people who say I'm a gay Christian and they don't mean even what we're talking about. We're many levels down in the let's rejoice together and and love you well If, if by assuming that what a gay Christian means is simply I experienced same-sex attraction but I've rejected them. There are some people who believe that there is nothing at odds whatsoever with a homosexual lifestyle, committed relationships and that God's totally for it. So obviously we would say no to that, um, but there are, also groups of Christians who I think hold on to gay yeah, Christian as a, as a way to identify their particular, I would say like their particular needs um, the kinds of relationships they are pursuing. So for instance, there's a conference, I guess every year called revoice and uh, I wouldn't you know, recommend spending too much time diving into this kind of stuff, but for many, many reasons, these are faithful brothers and sisters. Like I would say, wow, I really am grateful for the way they confess Jesus. They're striving for holiness. They would say, I wanna, I wanna live a life of abstinence. That's a wonderful thing. At the same time, I think that they continue to pursue an identity and a way of life that is unwise at best. And more than that, uh, I think delusional someplace. Like uh, they pursue you know, spiritual friendship. In other words, there's groups of Christians who would, Reject the practice of same-sex relationships, but they would embrace and say it's totally fine to have a, a, a romantic relationship with someone of the same sex, as long as you don't, as long as you don't act physically upon it. That it's a holy and a good thing to have a romantic connection with someone because God would want you to be happy. You know that kind of thing, and to me that just seems a little, like I said, it's unwise at best, delusional and dangerous at at its worst.
1: Yeah. Um. And I think there's something to be said about if the whole church goes crazy over like, how do we perfectly handle same sex attract people or get it? Like, how do we, is there some technique or way I'm like, I think we're kind of missing it where it's like, let's, you know, I don't think God is surprised that people sin in all the ways that we do. Right. And I think almost, by making it seem like, okay. Oh, someone has same-sex attraction. Like we've got to have this intensive, like whatever, like Mm -hmm. we, we, we got to pull out all the stops and do, and and like extra love them or make sure they're in everything. And I think some of that's, it's, it's it's almost counterproductive where it's just like, look, um, first of all, if someone tells you that they struggle with that, you know, I remember Rosaria Butterfield saying this, she's like, just say, Hey, thanks for telling me that it means a lot that you would, you know, Trust me with that information or something like that. And then be like, well, what does the word say? You know, okay, okay, it's sinful. Uh, What do we do with sin? We repent and uh, we confess it to the Lord and we be around brothers and sisters and, and we talk about it and we ask for help when we need it. And then when we screw up again, we confess again and we repent again right? And we don't make any provision for the flesh and we use wisdom and we look at Proverbs, what's a wise life? What, you know, like it, there are resources in Christianity. And I think sometimes we're trying to like over-specialize in this to our detriment. And I wonder if it's a down, it's if it's just, um, what's unique about homosexuality is this. In our culture, it's celebrated. Like, No one's going to celebrate adultery. I mean, sometimes people do. But even then, you're kind of like, if you cheat on your husband or wife, you're terrible, right? But the unique battle for Christians who have same-sex attraction temptations is that there's a whole cultural force that's pushing them to embrace it and to be proud of it. Whereas with other sins, it's not the same. Now, something like greed, maybe it is. Maybe my culture does push us. Toward greed, and, and we have to have an egg, ex- but the whole point is when a culture is so for something, um, we have to be especially thoughtful about saying, well, if you identify with this, you're, you're kind of like going with this current that's going at hundred miles an hour. So we have to be extra careful not to identify with that and extra clear about what the Bible teaches about it. So we do have to be clear and recognize where our culture is going and be like, no, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's homosexuality to sin. And then it's just like, well, you know, first of all, and then like 9,000 qualifications, and then it's like, it's not God's best. You know, and it's just like, the answer is yes. That's what the church has said, right? But it's not an uncaring yes, it's a yes of like, that's why we have the gospel. That's why Jesus Christ came. He came for people like you, for people like me, right? This is not a surprise. There's no sin that's beyond redemption of Christ. We have unique cultural issues that we have to be careful of, but did at the end of the day, repentance and faith and the love of the brothers, and the love of the sisters, and the love of the local church and the prayers of the saints and singing together, taking Lord's supper. It's like, this isn't rocket science. It's not going to say that you're going to become straight. It's not going to say that you won't ever battle with temptation, but it is to say like, let's not act as though, um, God has left us totally without any resources to love people. And to see genuine change and sanctification in people, specifically with the sin of homosexuality.
2: I think what makes this most difficult is that it's a term people use as an identity for themselves. Right. Almost like race or ethnicity. And that's what makes it very difficult to discuss with people. So the easiest way if you're gonna like get into discussion with someone about this is to help untangle the fact that gay can be an identity and that homosexual like practice or action is, is something that needs to be dissociated from that identity. We need to like work on these things separately.
0: Yeah, I I absolutely, that's probably goal number one. And then I would also say that you were going to, you're going to need a lot of grace and patience with someone in that process. And uh, I actually think a lot of times people aren't willing to be patient with with someone as they even work through that. So there, I think there are good reasons that, you know, the accusation could be that we've overreacted. I think there's good reasons you could say why. And I wouldn't want to be in an uncaring way, just tell someone like, well, hey, the means of grace for the church are just going to take care of it, it's fine. Because I do think people, like you said, you know, Andrew, or you said as well, this identity thing, I think in some ways people feel this differently. They, they live with this in a different way. So I would wanna make sure that I'm offering care that's commensurate with that as well. Um, people don't often confess things that they feel goes down to the core of who they are. So the rest of the sins would be, you know, I, I would wanna take it in accordance with that. It's oftentimes a very difficult, And so, though you could say to someone, that's not your identity, don't worry about it, just confess it and just come to church. I think what they may feel is, no, listen, this is what I judge everything by. I'm constantly thinking about how I'm doing with this. I'm wondering if I'm condemned. I'm wondering how I'm going to do. And so I would just, I guess I would wanna make as big a deal about it as the person needs grace. And then you think about, okay, well, let's address it in that way. And then, like you said, I do think we can't be naive too. And I think I said this on the day that I taught through this. I I would actually say we should make as big a deal about it as we can to meet corporate cultural, like the zeitgeist of the age. I don't think we should be naive. The church has has some kind of voice in the world and we can speak to these things and we need to be principled, thoughtful, careful, but direct. But that doesn't mean that that's the only posture that we have for this if someone humbly comes to you and says, "Will you pray with me or I just want to talk this through and I don't know what to do with this." There's the actual pastoring and caring of the person too, and those some those overlap, of course, but they're going to be very different too. In tone, in patience, in, you know, certainty or clarity, even to not assume that you know the person's situation or where they're at. So,
1: well, but I I'm I'm not suggesting at all that you would just say some, you know, Oh, well, it's the same like everything else To just come to church and do these things. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I know. What you I mean. think it's yeah. more of understanding how identity is formed. You don't just wake up one day and go, oh, I read a book on this identity. I guess I just want to do that. Identity is formed in a thousand ways in our practices and our habits and who we hang around with in our communities. And so that's what I mean by, I don't, I, that's what I mean by not making yeah, a big deal. I mean sure. it in the sense of, we know how identity is formed in regular life. Let's not act like, that doesn't apply to this particular situation. So I think one thing, you know, Rosaria Butterfield talks about the power, when, you know, Rosaria Butterfield, she's an author, she was used to be a lesbian uh, and was very involved in the LGBTQ movement. And she became the Christ and she repented of that. And, you know, that, that now she has like a ministry talking about that and among other things, but regardless, One thing she talked about was how powerful the community was, the LGBTQ community. And if you're somebody who's, you know, you're a teenager and you're struggling with this and you feel alone and ostracized, and then these people who accept you and you wanna be around you, who look at you like a person, who care about you, that's powerful. And I think that that works for Christianity as well. It's not just that someone realizes, okay, Homosexuality is a sin. I need to stop doing it. And you just start going to church. It's like, well, no, but you're also in Christ and you also are part of this family of believers. And we're going to treat you like that. And we're going to care for you and we're going to love you and we're going to, you know, be Christians together. And that's what I mean. It's like that, that does way more than just sitting, Hey, stop identifying with, you know, this thing. It's not just an intellectual switch but rather they're gonna stop identifying with that sin when they realize that people love them and see them for more than just that. And when their minds are renewed by hearing, okay, the most fundamental thing about me is I'm in Christ. What does that mean? And you learn that in a thousand ways by singing it, by hearing it preached, by taking the Lord's supper, by praying with believers, by reading the word, by having friendships, you know, and those little things degree upon degree I think can have a very transformative effect, not just for people with same-sex attraction, but for any person, right? Any person that's a powerful form of effect. But like Lance said, it takes patience, it takes a lot of grace, and uh, it takes really being like, I'm not gonna place my hopes in an outcome of this. I'm not gonna treat them like a project, right? But I'm gonna do what God has called me to do and then trust him with the rest. Hannah, did you have a question? Yeah.
2: I lost success listening. Um, what does what does God say about salvation when there's unrepentant sin? And I kind of feel like I have a little more sense to basically like what does God say about like friends who, for all intents and purposes, obviously only God knows people's heart, but it looks. They fully believe in the gospel and in the wholeness of Scripture, and yet they've read books like God and the Gay Christian um, and have like deeply considered this and have come to the conclusion that this is not a sin and this couldn't have been what God meant, and like even don't embrace it as their identity, embrace their identity in Christ, but this is also the lifestyle they've chosen to live. Mm-hmm how
3: do you grapple with, like, salvation? Um, And, like, I guess, what what does God say about? Does
1: that make sense? Yeah, I I would question whether that's actually true, that they don't view it as part of their identity, or, like, I think that, you know, okay, so one thing is, at the end of the day, do we know someone else is hard? We, we don't. And we don't know if they could have a revival in their spirit 20 years from now. So you never want to just be like, well, I know exactly what their eternal destiny is, you know, but you also can't nice people into heaven. You can't just be like, you know, and so I would one, I would question whether that's actually true that they don't view it as an integral part of their identity. And if they truly understand what it means to be in Christ. To just simply, I think there's issues of like, do they really believe the word of God is authoritative? And if they have some kind of novel interpretation of certain verses, I would just go, you know, the history of the church, church church denominations disagree on a lot of things, but all the major ones are very clear and unanimous on this one issue. So it takes a lot of pride, and I would say arrogance, to go against what. Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and all Protestant traditions that have maintained their orthodoxy have affirmed. Um, Another thing, too, I think on on a more practical side, um, you're not responsible for their salvation. And I think sometimes it's like, look, you can be like, that's sin and you need to repent. I mean, I don't know that you have to say that every time, but that's the posture of like, look, no, I'm not going to act as though this isn't a thing, um, but you know, I think if it were in a church situation and someone was in, in unrepentant sin, let's, let's say somebody was committing adultery and they didn't think adultery was a sin and they were just thought it was fine to cheat on their wife, but they were like, I'm in Christ, it's not part of my identity, da, da, da. well, we'd be like, well, okay, but if you don't repent, we're going to have to like, put you under church discipline or something. Like that is a dis- that, That's not something you can just do and keep doing and claim the name of Christ. You know? And so I, I would think in a church setting, if someone were walking in flagrant, unrepentant sin like that, you know, I'm not talking about someone who's struggling with it, I'm talking to somebody who like is going, I, not only is this a good thing, I want it to be recognized as a good thing. And I, will, I I am going to pursue this as a good thing. Then I think in the context of a church, that, that's, that's gotta be an issue that has to be addressed. But are they saved in the end? Well, I'd if, if, if they are confronted with their sin and they repent, that's a good sign. If they keep hardening themselves, that's a bad sign. And sometimes at that very point of sin reveals the genuineness of their faith. I mean, I think if, if what they're doing is grievous to the Spirit of God, if what they're doing is grievous to Jesus Christ, um, and that doesn't mean anything to them, you know, I, I, I almost don't buy that they're really convinced of their own arguments either. I would be very curious if that's actually true or if there actually is a gnawing sense of like, I know I'm trying to read the fine print here or something, or I know I'm trying to suppress what I know is the, the, the scripture says, but I know that's a long answer, but I think, um, I think in the context of a church, if someone's unrepentant of their sin, That's why you have things like the Matthew 18 discipline process. And that's actually a tool that God uses to reveal whether someone genuinely has a heart that loves Christ. In a cultural context, I don't know. I just think specifically of like, I know the Old Testament doesn't talk about like every single time people, sure, things, but like, sure, man with like multiple wives
2: and like things like that. That's not God's design for marriage. That's that is sin. Right. And maybe God has standard, Like, but I don't know. Like, do we see people who
1: follow the cultural nightmares of their time, even though it is sin?
2: But
3: they are
1: still
2: belonging to God, and, like, even if God never opens their eyes to see that sin, that, like, like,
1: you can still pursue holiness and miss it in it. Sure, or another example could be, like, Christians who had slaves. Yeah. Right? That was the cultural thing at the time. It's obviously yeah. sinful, but uh, many of the theological people we look up to had slaves. Not many, but, I mean, there there was at least some significant ones. Um. That's a good question. I mean, I think, yeah, like, Can there be, well, then the question becomes, is that the case in that situation? Is this person, you know, one, ignorant that it's a sin, or two, knows that it's a sin and doesn't want to repent of it? Now, I think maybe an over-focus on, like, are they going to heaven is the issue here. It's like, well, uh, we don't know. Their life hasn't fleshed itself out yet. And we ultimately, even if they did say, oh, I repent, we still don't know their heart. Like we can't look into that. So I don't know if we have to spend as much time going, I know what this, what this, where this person is going. But I think you have to ask yourself, you know, if you had a, you know, a friend who was committing adultery, right? And, uh, and then they died in a car crash. It's like, will they go to heaven or not? I don't know that we can say, right? but. If you do have a friend who's committing adultery and they're constantly doing and claiming the name of Christ, that's a, that's a serious deal. I don't want to underplay that. And I would, I would go, do you know what it means to follow Christ? Do you know, like what, what would make you think that that something like that would be okay? You know? And I think one part of it is you'll reap what you sow. God's not mocked. You know, I think that if you have unrepented sin in your life and you are a believer, uh, God will deal with you, maybe in a very severe way. And I would hope that you'd be spared of that. Um, Or God may give you over to it completely and cause a lot of destruction. So I think there's just, in terms of, if you love the person, you don't want them committing these sins because they're destructive, you know, and they're dishonoring to God. So I think, um, yeah. Yeah, I would think about these things in terms of
0: warnings. Warnings and promises or calls. So even as it, as it regards salvation, I you mean, know, we call people to it, but we don't determine if they go to heaven. We tell them what scripture says concerning heaven. And I would just never stop telling someone, Hey, this is what the scripture warns. And so I just want you to remember this. I'm praying for you and you should repent. But yeah, I would agree with Brian that, you know, maybe a certainty one way or the other. I would never want to, to somehow use that as my tool to tell someone, you're going to hell for sure 100%. And that's what my judgment is concerning you. I don't know that you, now the church has to make calls sometimes. I mean, we do bar people from communion. I mean, we would tell them the way that you're acting puts you outside of fellowship, but even that outside of fellowship, I think is a warning. It's not necessarily like we're God and we know for sure. So.
1: The other thing too is kind of just, sin corrupts you, right? If you're doing something sinful, C.S. Lewis talks about this. It makes it, the, when you do something sinful, what it does is it makes the next time doing it that much easier. And it's a continual corruption of yourself. So you could imagine a guy going, you know, I think Chino, my wife, is fine. I'm going to keep doing it, but I'm still going to go to church and I still want to share the gospel. And I still love Jesus and all that stuff. Well, we'll see how much he's loving Jesus in 10 years. I mean, that, to, to think that walking in unrepentant sin will have a zero net effect on you and your faith is foolishness. So I think if someone is walking on repentant sin and they're saying, well, I love Jesus now, did all this stuff. I, if you let that continue to, I mean, that's why in Hebrews is don't let roots of bitterness fester in your heart or, you know, these kinds of things are corrupting in themselves. So again, God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. If you think you can keep doing these things and just be fine in your faith, you just have a disagreement with what it is. That's not, you will not be unscathed by this pursuit of rebellion. And I think that's a reality. So let's say you found out your friend was going to go to heaven. Would you still tell them to stop sinning? <laughs> like, or, or would that, you know, if, if, if yeah. let's say that they die, that you knew that it's a sin, but they died and they didn't repent, but they would go to heaven. You had that guarantee. Would that change still? You telling them to stop doing it, right? You would still be concerned for the honor of Christ. You'd still be concerned for how it's affecting other people, you'd still be concerned for their own heart, wouldn't you? So I think we underestimate the destructiveness of sin and how unrepented sin continued can continue to corrupt you. That's a good question though. I mean, that, yeah. that's it's a really good question. All right, well, we've gone an hour and a half yeah. or over, uh,
0: over time. There's a million questions. So thanks for, for coming. Thanks for trying to help. We're gonna post this for people. So hopefully it's helpful in some ways. And if there's further questions, um, I mean, we certainly think about it a lot. These are not. This is not the the end. All of our conversations. We have lots of them. So, I think we're going to end uh, end podcast, and we'll keep teaching through Romans. And in the few chapters, we'll be back. So that's the plan.